Simon, Simon, Satan had to ask to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, three times that you know me. And then reading from verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. You may be seated. How many of you remember um, how awkward it was to have that first conversation with somebody after you'd broken up with them? Uh, how many of you remember facing your parents for the first time after you'd been caught smoking or drinking or had broken the window at school or something like that? Uh, how many of you as married couples um, when there is an issue between you and you know it needs to be talked about, go to bed at different times. Because when do you talk? It's when you go to bed. And so your plan is to watch TV until she's asleep, right? Uh, we come here every Sunday morning to worship, which means to engage with God, to have, a, to have an encounter with the real God. And that can be awkward. Because this week, some of us have drunk too much. Some of us have lost our temper again. Some of us have looked at things that we know we shouldn't look at or entertained thoughts that we know we shouldn't have. Some of us have very consciously set God aside because we didn't want to make the effort to connect with him. We ignored our spouse or our children. 
Some of us come here this morning with a kind of a vague but pervasive sense that God is disappointed with us, that he sees us as perennial underachievers spiritually. Some of us maybe even come here this morning and are suddenly struck by the fact that God hasn't even occurred to us all week long. And if this is just church, then that's okay. If we come here to sing songs or to say prayers or to hear a sermon, then our guilt, if we have any at all, is pretty mild. But if we are here to engage with a real and present God, that is, he's really here, and he's personal, then that's different. If we come to church knowing that God is here, but we also know our own failures, then there is the risk that what happened to Peter will happen to us, that at some point in the morning we will sense that the Lord has turned and is looking straight at us and is looking into our hearts, and we know that he knows what's in there. And maybe we imagine that when God sees us on a Sunday morning, he kind of sighs and shakes his head, disappointed. Have you ever felt like that? I feel like that sometimes. And in my, I'm 42, and in my life up to this point, I have felt that reality all that often. It's awkward to come and pray because there's this that I'm still thinking about or there's this that I did and in my personal prayer or on a Sunday morning. The sense that I can't connect with God, that God probably really doesn't want to connect with me because I bring my failure with me. And if that's you this morning, then Peter is your patron saint. We identify with Peter, wanting to do it right, but doing it wrong. Peter is the most familiar of all of Jesus' 12 disciples. Nobody in the Gospels speaks more than Peter. Nobody in the, or none of the disciples is spoken to by Jesus more often than Peter. Um, all four of the Gospels at one point list the disciples and the names come in a different order, but Peter is always first. He had primacy among the disciples. And the picture of Peter that emerges in the Gospels and in the book of Acts is of a man who is brash, confident, speaks too quickly, forceful. He's never sort of, no half measures for Peter. Wherever Peter was, he was all there. Except that sometimes he was in two different places at once and was all there in both spots. Peter's kind of a study in self-contradiction. For example, uh, when you remember the story, Jesus walking on the water and the disciples are in the boat, it's Peter who says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come on the water to you and I will. And Jesus says, come. And Peter walks on the water, what incredible faith, then sees the storm and says, what am I doing here? And sinks, Lord, save me. Great faith to get out of the boat. Jesus says, you have little faith. That's Peter. It's Peter who on in one moment says of Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the next moment says, you don't know what you're talking about. What's all this stuff about a cross and suffering? Only Peter could do that in the same breath. Peter often spoke before he thought. You know, we, we think if you don't have anything to say, don't say it. 
That was never a problem with Peter. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and James and John, they see Jesus kind of unveiled, see him in his full glory, and he's talking with Moses and Elijah. And Peter says, Peter says, what's well, a good thing we're here? We can build three shelters, one for each of you. And the, the Gospels actually say that Peter said that because he didn't know what he was saying. It's kind of like his mouth said, well, something's got to be said. I'm not going to wait for the brain, so I'm just going to, you know. That was Peter. Wherever he was, he was all there. And Peter, Peter, Peter could cut off the ear of somebody who's coming to hurt his Jesus and the very same night swear up and down that he'd never even heard of Jesus. That's Peter. And sometimes, that's me. And I'm guessing sometimes it's you. We relate to Peter. Peter is like, Peter is our disciple. In the Gospel of Luke, we meet Peter for the first time in Luke chapter 5. This is not the first time that Jesus meets Peter, by the way. Uh, John chapter 1, you have Andrew meeting Jesus and right away going to get his brother Peter and bringing him to meet Jesus. Near the end of Luke chapter 4, after Jesus has been teaching in the synagogue, he actually goes to Peter's house for lunch after the service and heals Peter's mother-in-law. So Peter and Jesus, I mean, their lives have intersected before. And Peter is an acquaintance of Jesus. They know each other. But on this day, Luke chapter 5, Something's going to happen, and Peter's going to switch from being an acquaintance to being a follower of Jesus. And by the way, that is the normal journey for all of us. Some of you here this morning might be acquaintances of Jesus. You may have grown up in the church. You know the stories. You might be exploring faith again or trying to reconnect with religion in some way. And you are an acquaintance of Jesus. You might even like him. You might even think highly of him. But you're an acquaintance. And for anybody that gets to know Jesus well enough to be called an acquaintance, Jesus will always at some point say, now it's time, you follow. And then a decision has to be made. And maybe that's, maybe that's a decision for you even this morning. It was a decision Peter had to make, and this is how it happened. Jesus is in Peter's hometown and comes, which is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, a thriving fishing community. So it's a beautiful morning, and Jesus is down at the beach. And even though it's early in Jesus' ministry, he already has a reputation. So at the beach, crowds of people come to him to the point of sort of hemming him in, and he can't kind of make his way and have room. So he says to Peter, who is working in his boat right there. He says, Peter, I need your boat for a second. Jesus gets in the boat, pushes offshore just a few meters, gives himself some breathing space, and begins to teach the people. And after Jesus is done teaching, whenever that is, then Jesus says to Peter, you know, let's go fishing. Let's go out into deep water. Let's drop down the nets and catch some fish. Now, Peter is a fisherman by trade. He's already been working all night and hasn't caught anything. But Peter knows Jesus well enough, has enough respect for him as a spiritual leader or something, as a teacher, a healer. Peter has enough respect to say, you know what, Jesus, we've tried all night, but because you say so, I'll give it another shot. Let's, let's go. And out on the lake, he drops the nets, and immediately the net is 
full, like full to overflowing. So much so that the nets are tearing. Peter's boat probably in danger of capsizing. Peter has to holler back to James and John, his partners. We need your boat. Come now. And Peter understands that this, this catch of fish is not just a stroke of good fortune. That this is a miracle. That this is something that Jesus has done. Peter knows that there is a direct line from this net full of fish and this man in his boat. And even though Peter knows Jesus a little bit, he suddenly understands that there is something about this man that the the glorious and powerful God is present with or in Jesus in some way that Peter has never thought of before. And in the same breath, Peter understands something about himself. He sees himself, he sees his own sinfulness. When you're faced with the reality of God, you see your own sinfulness. That is, you see the gap between the two of you. That's just how it works. And that happened to Peter. And Peter says to Jesus, you've got to leave me alone. There's, there's no room for somebody like me in your world. Just, you better just go. And Peter's essential response is, well, I am going to go, but I want you to come with me. I want, I want you to leave what you're doing, and I want you to be involved in what I'm doing. You've been bringing in fish. I want you to work with me and bring people into the kingdom of God. And Peter has a decision to make. This is his boat. This is is the livelihood that he knows. This is the city that he calls home. He's just had a catch of fish that's going to do very well for him financially. And yet, he goes. We read in Luke 5 that even though Jesus addresses Peter and says, you follow me, turns out that Peter and James and John left their boats and their nets and became followers of Jesus on that day. And the next two years for Peter were a roller coaster. He saw things in those two years that made the catch of fish look minor. He saw paralyzed people healed by Jesus so they could not only walk but jump and leap and praise God. He saw lepers cleansed. He saw dead people raised to life. He saw demons respond to the word, the authority of Christ. He saw Jesus tell a storm to stop and it did. He heard Jesus teaching, heard it with authority. He saw firsthand the fear and the hostility that Jesus teaching evoked in the religious people. And yet Peter understood. Peter knew that what Jesus was saying about God and about God's kingdom was right. And somewhere along the way, Peter came to the place where he affirmed and did so publicly that Jesus was not only God's promised Messiah, but was in fact in some way the very son of God. And that journey of understanding for Peter had another thread to it, and that was the thread of friendship. That Peter and Jesus were close, and the two of them, with James and John, were best friends. There were things that, that Jesus experienced with those three friends that the other disciples didn't get to see. The Mount of Transfiguration, the raising from death of the little girl. Jesus and Peter... We're very close. And Peter came to love Jesus. 
And make no mistake, Peter loved Jesus. We read the account of Peter's denial and think his love must not have been very much. But even after Jesus' resurrection, do you remember John 21, the episode, you know, again in another catch a fish episode in the Sea of Galilee? And Jesus has this conversation with Peter, and Peter knows full well how badly he has failed, but he still appeals to Jesus and says, Look, you, you know everything. You know that I love you. You at least know that. And he did. Peter really loved Jesus. And in fact, it was Peter's love for Jesus that made Peter's denial of Jesus so much more bitter. And then we come to our passage in Luke 22. It's, it's the night of Jesus' rest. They're celebrating the Passover feast where they are remembering in Israel's history God's deliverance of them from slavery in Egypt and forming them to be God's own people. And Jesus, in that meal, reinterprets the significance of that meal in light of himself, that he will effect a greater deliverance and he will, in himself, form a new people of God. And Jesus talks about his imminent death and suffering. He talks about the fact that he is going to be betrayed. And then suddenly and very jarringly, Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And I just picture Jesus going, I'm the son of God. I'm going to lay down my life to save the world. One of you is going to betray me. And you're talking about Who's better than who? Didn't you hear what I said? And the disciples, they just can't get past their own thought that Jesus is about to go public and political with his kingdom. And they're jockeying for position. And they totally miss what Jesus is saying about servanthood and suffering being the marks of God's kingdom. And in that context, Jesus suddenly starts talking to Peter. And this is what we read this morning. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Here's, here's some Greek for you. Our English does pronouns so badly. Satan has demanded to have you, plural, so the 12, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, Peter. Satan's desire to have this group, but I've prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And then Peter, in all his brashness, says, Lord, what, my faith? Pray for my faith? Are you kidding? I'm Peter. We're like this. I'd go to prison for you. I would die for you. And Jesus says, you know what, Peter? Before the rooster crows, before you see the sun today, you will deny me deny three times that you know me. The other gospels, Luke doesn't record this, but the other gospels say that Peter doesn't only say, oh man, I would even die for you. He says, even if the rest of these leave you, abandon you, forsake you, I wouldn't. In other words, Jesus, I'm better than all these guys. You know that. Jesus says, Peter, tonight you will deny me three times. And Peter can't believe it. But his failure begins to happen immediately. Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room, go to the Mount of Olives, 
where Jesus says to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Satan has demanded to have you. Peter, friends, there are spiritual dynamics going on here that you know nothing about. Pray. Satan's going to sift you like wheat. He's demanded to have you. You're going to fall into temptation. Pray. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus and the disciples are all going to be sifted like wheat. And Jesus goes, and he gets sifted. He faces his test, and what does he do? He prays. Father, if there's any other way for your kingdom to come, if there's any other way for this this kingdom of light and righteousness, this kingdom of God, for the kingdom of darkness to be pushed back, if it could happen any way that doesn't require me going to the cross, let it be that way. Jesus is kind of oppressed with dread at the thought of going to the cross. And Jesus is being tested here. But he responds in prayer. He faces this spiritual battle by going to God and struggling, but struggling with God. And he says then, but you know what, Father? It's not my will that's at play here. I am your son. I am on your mission. What you want is what I will do. And that is the anchor that Jesus clung to. And from there, Jesus could stand, face everything that happened in the next 12 hours, calmly and with dignity. What do the disciples do? Sleep. Jesus, Peter's failure started there, by the way. He slept. Jesus explicitly said, there is a spiritual world here. You're gonna be tested, pray. That's how you do battle spiritually. You pray. And they slept. And when the time came for their being sifted, they were entirely unprepared. The mob came, led by Judas. Jesus is standing there. The disciples get up kind of bleary-eyed. And as soon as he knows what's going on, Peter kind of grabs for his sword, lashes out, slices the ear off one of the lackeys of the high priest. Peter said, I would even die for you. You know what? He meant it. He would have. He could have, right there. But imagine Peter's shock when Jesus rebukes him. No more of this, Jesus says. Put the sword away. And Jesus heals the man that Peter has attacked. Now think about that. Peter's defending Jesus and gets rebuked, and Jesus takes care of the enemy. And Peter is absolutely confused. Rebuking me? He doesn't know what's going on. And again, it's a spiritual battle. And Peter's lashing out with his physical sword. He says, we don't fight like that. My kingdom doesn't come that way. And then again, Luke doesn't say it, but the other gospels do, that at that point, all of the disciples, gone, flee in fear. And Jesus is there alone, the only one with any strength to face what's happening. What happens after that is very familiar to us. The mob ties Jesus up, leads him back into the city. They go to the home of the high priest for a trial that is illegal. And Peter actually follows, and John, I think, from the Gospel of John as well, They actually follow at a distance, and 
And as the trial is happening inside, there's, there's some people, some soldiers, some servants in the courtyard. They build a fire, try to ward off the chill. And Peter and John actually go in there. Like, that's remarkable. I think I admire Peter for being there. It wasn't... He had some courage, and I respect that about Peter, that he was even there. And it was risky. Whose house is he at? Well, the guy whose servant's ear Peter has just cut off. And, and it's dark, but it's not black. There's fire, maybe torches, and Peter can be seen. And maybe he's hoping that he can just sort of fade and be unnoticed. The soldiers will think he's one of the servants. The servants will think that Peter's one of the soldiers. And he kind of comes up to the fire, tries to stay warm, and the inevitable happens, right? The servant girl catches a glimpse of Peter's face and says, he was with Jesus. And Peter's immediate defensive response, I don't even know him. Then a little time goes by, verse 58, a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. And Peter said, man, I'm not. Then an hour goes by, after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Now, now notice those phrases, after a little while. After an interval of about an hour. Peter's in the courtyard for some time. He's got lots of time to get all wound up and anxious. Just imagine the stress within Peter. And we read between the lines a little bit, but it seems as if that those in the courtyard are having conversations about Peter. Maybe whispering among themselves, like, oh yeah, he looks an awful lot like the guy who was standing beside Jesus when I saw him in the temple yesterday. Uh, I that might have been him with the sword in the garden. Yeah, when Jesus rode in last week's Sunday, like, I think this guy was like standing right beside the donkey. And just the tension on Peter is unbelievable. And then finally when the third guy says, you're a Galilean, you're with Jesus, Peter says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And once again, it's the other Gospels. Matthew and Mark say that G Peter doesn't just say, I don't know what you're talking about. He actually calls down curses on himself. He's fallen apart. He thinks he doth protest too much. Peter's collapsing and falling apart. And as soon as Peter says that, two things happen immediately. One is the rooster crows. And the second is that Jesus himself turns and looks straight at Peter. At dawn, the trial was over. Jesus had been condemned, and they're starting to lead him to go see Pilate. So Peter, Jesus comes in the courtyard, the cock crows, and Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter remembers his own words. Jesus, I would die for you. They might fall away. I never will. And he remembers Jesus' words. Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny you even know me three times. And Peter's failure just comes crashing in on him almost destroys him. He's overwhelmed with guilt that he has, this one that he loves so passionately, he is utterly forsaken. And Peter runs out of the courtyard and just weeps bitterly. I want to go back to the upper room and what Jesus said to Peter there. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I, I wonder how long Jesus had known that, how long Jesus had been praying. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not 
fail. Now, what happened in the courtyard? Did Peter's faith fail? If it did, does what Jesus prays for not get answered? Have you ever thought about that? Imagine God the Father hearing the prayer of Jesus and saying, no. Did Peter's faith fail? I don't think that it did. I think Peter sinned. I think he fell. I don't think that his faith failed. And here's why I don't think that. Because after the resurrection... Jesus gives to Peter a place of leadership among the disciples. At Pentecost, you see Peter filled with the Holy Spirit and preaching Jesus like nobody's business, and 3,000 people get saved. Peter heals people. Peter raises somebody from the dead, and if tradition is correct, Peter was crucified precisely because of his commitment to Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Do not ever say that faith has failed until you know the end. I think Jesus got what he prayed for because he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him three times. Jesus knew that Peter would turn again and stand and be in a position to give leadership to the other disciples. Jesus knew that. Never judge faith, your own faith, on the failure of the moment because Jesus does not do that. Jesus knew that Peter would stand again. What was Jesus' confidence in? Peter's faith? No. Jesus' confidence was in the fact that I, Peter, I have prayed for you. And even though Satan has demanded you, I have prayed for you, and your faith will not fail. Last fall, preached a message on Christ as our intercessor. You remember that? Hebrews chapter 7, that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' intercession for us is a perfect and complete and effective intercession. And so here's the thing. If you come here this morning or on any given Sunday and you carry a failure with you, Please do not think that God does not want to engage with you. Please do not think that it's somehow awkward for God to be in conversation with you and to care for you and to minister to you. I think that when we come with our failures and we feel awkward about it, it's because we're like Peter. And we think either on one hand, I can do this life of faith, And then when we blow it, we collapse and think that we are failures. We come to church on any given Sunday with our confidence not in how we've done this week, but in the fact that Christ is the Son of God who gave his life for us and prays for us. And on that basis, every single Sunday, I don't care what you did this week, every single Sunday, if you are in Christ, God says, my child, come. 
And we worship with freedom and we give our hearts to God knowing full well that he knows what's in there but that it's okay. And we know that God is seeing us not based on the moment in the last week where we blew it but in the context of eternity and the finished work of Christ and what God knows he is going to do in us and the reality that in Christ we are his children. Did Peter's faith fail? No. No. Did yours? No. Did you sin? Yes. (laughs) Need to repent? Yes. Does that sort of destroy the work of God in your life? No. Are you still his child? Yes. And I love Peter for that, that this is what he teaches us. He doesn't teach us that we better pray more often so that what happens to Peter doesn't happen to us. He doesn't teach us to roll up our sleeves so that we don't sin in the same way that Peter does. Peter teaches us grace. Peter teaches us the work of Christ in our lives. That's what Peter teaches us. And next week, Sunday, we will come here and some of us will bring things with us that we don't want to bring. But God knows those things and Christ has forgiven those things and he welcomes us. That is a gift of grace from our Lord, the Son of God, who has made us the people of God. What an incredible thing that is. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, your call to follow you is in some respects just a call to respond to the fact that you follow us. You you are with us. You go where we go. And I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your prayers for us. I thank you for the finished work of the cross, for the real and eternal forgiveness. I thank you for grace. I thank you that You, Father God, are not disappointed with us that you never fold your arms and shake your head when we come into this building, when we come to you in prayer. Never. I thank you for that, and I pray for your help in knowing that truth because Satan still would want to sift us, would want to cause us to doubt, would delight in our failing. But Jesus, you never fail. And our security is in that. And we thank you. Help us to know, oh God, your grace. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.